0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Dave Lefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I am thrilled to welcome you to this inaugural episode where we take a look back at top stories from Compliance Week in May, the Compliance Week 2021 virtual conference. We chat with special guest Allie McDevitt, the author of a five-part special report on the VW monitorship, talk some sports, and let you know what's upcoming in June from Compliance Week. Know you will enjoy this great new podcast. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network from the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports that generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Dave
1: Lefort, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. I'm thrilled to join Tom to help bring some of the top stories that CW is following, uh, featured writers from Compliance Week, and as always, to talk some more to Tom. In today's episode, we'll take a look back at the top stories from Compliance Week in May, I'll Look, take a look back at our uh, 2021 virtual conference, and we'll also chat with Allie McDevitt who authored a, uh, a five-part special report on the Volkswagen three-year compliance
0: monitoring. So, Dave, uh, you just concluded the Compliance Week 2021 virtual conference. What were some of the highlights for you? So yeah,
1: we did. It was uh, it was it was a great conference. I mean, it was it was virtual again, unfortunately, but that's the world we live in. Uh, but one of the key sort of themes was that. We are stomach starting to come out of this virtual world. We're st- the pandemic is lifting. The vaccines are are widespread at this point. And what will that mean for business in particular? And specifically, uh, what will it mean for compliance? So, our keynote speaker, uh, James Comey, the former FBI director, uh, he sort of he reminded us that the sort of the last time this happened, uh, the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, what closely followed that was, if you remember, the Roaring Twenties. Um, so Comey predicted what he called uh, were boom times ahead. And of course, with any boom time, there comes increased uh, increased risks, increased uh, shortcuts taken, as businesses try to uh, sort of claw back some of the losses that, that we've all experienced over the past uh, year plus um, as COVID has really wreaked havoc on the economy and employment, um, so so really the theme and and what Comey was referencing there is the uh, the empowerment of the ethics and compliance function um, on a number of fronts and the responsibilities and importantly the opportunities that come with it. So to go back to these to these boom times, what 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 he's referring to is. It, there'll be increased cyber risk, increased risk of fraud, uh, increased, uh, other increased uh, money laundering risks. Also the, uh, what he called the exponential expansion of institutions, um, attack surfaces. Uh, so, and then along with that, there is more expectation for, uh, so so society in general, in large, has has changed over the past year. Uh, with uh, social justice movements, with new uh, climate change initiatives. We've seen with regulators across the world, in particular in the US, the importance of, of ESG, environmental and social and governance issues. Those are starting to take center stage and they certainly will in the years going forward. So, so really what we're seeing is, is a time of empowerment for the ethics and compliance function and and what, what will come with that. So. I mean, just take for example. Uh, you look at two recent incidents: the, the Colonial uh, Colonial Pipeline attack, the, the ransomware attack. Um, the the CEO from the Colonial Pipeline came out and, and said, "Yes, we did we did end up paying these the, these hackers uh, because you know they were they were asking for I think it was four or five million dollars, and the risk uh, of not paying was was much greater." Um, that, that that opens up a whole box of, of ethical questions. Is that the right ethical thing to do? Uh, you know, you, you could make the argument that just as the United States does not negotiate with terrorists, that by by paying uh, by paying a ransom to, to hackers, you're you're only um, emboldening the hackers to do it again, to do it more. And that that's not that's also not to take into account the risks, the the, the cybersecurity risk posed by, by state actors. So let's say this wasn't a hacker group but rather it was a state-sponsored attack by uh another nation a china or a russia for example um that could have done some real damage and, and what this is sort of unveiled here and, and the biden administration has acknowledged as such that uh some of these some a lot of private companies are in charge of protecting uh really critical infrastructure in the united states so Uh, You know, Biden has has pledged to take action on improving cybersecurity infrastructure for, uh, you know, for 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 pipeline companies, for for pipeline providers. But there are a lot of other utilities that this the same thing could happen to There There is uh, there's serious underinvestment in um, in cyber protections sort of across the board. In, in certain areas and utilities are, are obviously a big a big one of those so there's there is a there's a lot of risk there um, and so it's it's acknowledging that like what what are I guess as, as a compliance function what is what is the responsibility uh, that comes with that um, and it's a lot really uh, and there there needs to be, a, so in other words, what, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the, the overall theme from the conference and all of the messaging really touched upon the increased responsibility, the increased importance of the compliance uh, function within every organization, not just for these the the cybersecurity risk that I talk about, but the increased expectations on things like uh, the importance of culture within an organization, the import- the importance of Um, environmental initiatives, the environmental reporting, uh, uh, that environmental reporting that's sort of coming down the pike, that's been sort of projected by the Biden administration. And more and more companies are turning to the compliance function to, uh, as, as the, I guess, the uh, the part of the company in which it makes the most sense logistically to, to be responsible for that. And so, there is increased pressure and increased responsibility within that compliance function to, to take a lead on that. Um, just look at what happened in the energy industry this week. Uh, a Dutch court had said that Shell was at least partially responsible for, for climate change. Um, and an Exxon, uh, Exxon, an activist investor, was able to win two seats um, on the board there. So. You know, this this change, these changes are investor-led. They are company stakeholder-led. They are regulator-led, um, and and they're coming. And so, more and more companies are are going to need to acknowledge that and turn to their to the compliance function to come up with some some answers and some transparency, um, and to into and really have a, a shift in in culture is really what is ultimately going to be uh necessary here so so that really was a really a a big theme from the conference along with we had uh for the very first time the third day of of our conference was uh, essentially compliance career day so a day devoted to uh best practices for advancing your compliances career Um, so it, we, we had speakers talk about, you know, how do you best sell yourself to your board? How do you best show the return on investment for compliance? How do you best position yourself for success, both within your organization and also how to advocate for members of your team as well? Um, so uh, so so that that day three, that that career day um, that was new for us. It was it was really successful. A lot of great energy came out of that. Came out of that, um, and it really sort of demonstrates one of the takeaways that I had from that is that compliance is is changing. It used to be that compliance was made up of of lawyers uh, and auditors, and now it's uh, it's made up of people who who really you know there, there is regulatory knowledge obviously that's needed, but it's people who who can focus on the soft skills too. People who can understand what a healthy culture means—you um, know—that that really can't get missed within companies anymore. Uh, because at the end of the day, culture is critical for uh, for organizations, and the more that compliance is in is in an empowered position, the better off companies will be. Because the compliance function is is the function that's going to advocate for that healthy culture
0: or some of the top stories over the past month uh two or three top stories that compliance uh week reported on either uh online or in print so our top story uh of the month was actually
1: it uh, was a column written to us by uh, by martin woods who uh, if the name sounds familiar it's because he's he's a fairly big name uh in aml circles and in, in fighting financial crime um, he's sort of been on on the front lines uh, in a lot of that, helping with regulators, helping with companies to do that. But he's he's also a periodic columnist for Compliance Week. Uh, he wrote about some of the the AML problems that persist at Deutsche Bank. Um, so the uh, German regulator BaFin um, instructed Deutsche Bank recently to do more to comply with AML laws and regulations. And and this really this came you know just months after. Deutsche Bank earlier this year said it had spent more than a billion dollars on compliance enhancements and increased increased its staff that was dedicated to fighting money laundering to, you know, close to 2000 employees globally. So and for, for Deutsche Bank to make that kind of investment and for their lead regulator to come back and say, like, look, you need to do more. That really says that that what they're doing that isn't working. Uh, because that that really should be enough if they were strategically pointed in the right direction. So the moral, I mean, his point really was that you know questioning whether you know executives and perhaps regulators uh, they may be having uh, old attitudes and really uh, lack understanding of the best ways to fight financial crime um, in this in this new age. Um, he even quotes uh, Bob Mazer. Um, famously uh depicted in the the infiltrator who uh who major during one of our previous conferences had also said that uh the the methods by which uh people launder money haven't really changed over the over the past 20 years like he he could like there there are obviously new technologies um and you know with crypto has added a new uh, a new wrinkle as well but but the methods by which Criminals go about doing this haven't changed. So why haven't why haven't regulators gotten better at it, and why haven't companies gotten better at at fighting uh, that kind of thing? And that's something that that really resonated with our audience, and that was that was our our, our most uh, our most popular article from the from the last month or so. Um, some of the other some of the other ones, uh, the other coverage from uh, the past month that resonated was obviously. So all of the stories that we wrote off of our, our national conference, the James Comey keynote speech, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the other uh, pieces that we wrote from the conference, and a lot of our coverage of, uh, we wrote feature stories on each of our excellence in compliance award winners. So our, our CCO of the year, uh, Josh, Josh Ross from, from FedEx, we had a feature on him. We wrote a feature on uh, Emmanuel Lulin, uh, who is the CCO for L'Oreal he's got a great story to tell. Uh, he won our Lifetime uh, Achievement in Compliance Award. So we had some really great coverage uh, from both from the conference and really great features on those individuals as well. Those those are really the highlights from the past month or so, along with, of course, and I know we're going to get to this, We, uh, Ali McDevitt, our, our data and research journalist, uh, wrote a great long-form case study on Volkswagen's three-year compliance monitorship. So that those were really our, our biggest headlines from, uh, from the
0: month of May. Dave, could you give us perhaps a teaser of uh, some of the stories you're looking at in
1: June? Yeah, so in June, uh, some of the things that we are looking at, so our, 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 our next print issue for Compliance Week members uh, will be coming out, will be delivered to you uh, in a few weeks. It'll include the full version of our Volkswagen case study. It'll include coverage from our May conference. It'll also include uh, some of the feature stories I discussed from our, our excellence and compliance award winners. And the, the one I want to spotlight here is the, the feature that we have on uh, Emmanuel Loulin, um our uh, lifetime achievement, uh, sorry, a lifetime, lifetime achievement and compliance award winner. Uh, he's got a very, very interesting story to tell. He was formerly, uh, before he was a CCO, um, Who's actually a Nazi hunter, helping to uh, sort of track down uh, some of those responsible for the Holocaust. So he's got a very, very interesting story to tell from his journey from uh, from that into the field of ethics, into the field of compliance, and some of the transformational changes that he made um, at at L'Oreal. And then the other one I want to spotlight is we also tracked uh, we also tracked FedEx's um, FedEx's uh, Journey through the pandemic. So since February 2020, FedEx, as you know, as you can probably figure, uh, they've been responsible for for shipping PPE equipment all around the world, for shipping vaccines all around the world, for and then obviously delivering delivering packages all over the world during this time when people were afraid to leave their houses to go shopping, and most most transactions in most uh, most goods and goods were were sort of delivered door to door. So. And these these FedEx employees were considered essential workers, and they were working uh, straight through the pandemic, and they weren't working from home. They were working in uh, in factories and in, in shipping locations and in trucks. Uh, so so Josh Ross, their their CCO, talked about the challenges of doing that, uh, both the ethical challenges and sort of the operational challenges of doing that during you know such an unprecedented time. So th- those are really that the highlights that uh members can expect to see from our 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 print issue uh that's coming out uh, in just a couple of weeks
0: dave we're going to take a short break now so uh we will be back in a minute this is tom fox again uh as this is our first episode we wanted to do something special and as a reader and subscriber to compliance week one of the highlights for me over the past month day was the special report by Ally McDevitt on the VW monitorship, and we're lucky to have Allie as our first uh, special guest. Could you introduce her and introduce the special report?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: And so, so first off, I'll I'll talk about the topic
1: at hand. So, so Ally, uh, Ally wrote a long form case study on uh, on Volkswagen, um, and specifically the the recently concluded three year compliance monitorship that Volkswagen was ordered to undergo in the wake of Dieselgate so uh, i'm sure everyone remembers uh volkswagen intentionally uh cheated on emissions tests in order to to push through their uh their clean diesel um uh, clean diesel cars to the u.s market and really all around the world uh they were caught red-handed uh they they refused to take blame for the longest time um and they were slapped with billions of dollars in fines and this three-year compliance monitorship in order to, to really undergo a top-to-bottom cultural change within the, uh, within the organization. And that's really where we stepped in. So uh, so Allie McDevitt, um, our case study writer, she spent countless hours talking to VW executives, talking to people uh, on the monitorship side to discuss what were the, what were the major takeaways from this three-year monitorship. She really dove deep into what steps did the monitors take, what steps did Volkswagen take, and sort of what was what was the process here, and, and most importantly, what were the lessons learned through this whole process by Volkswagen that compliance practitioners who read this can really take away and bring to their own programs. So, with that introduction, I wanna I wanna hand things over to to you, Tom, and to Allie uh, to go into more depth on this. So,
0: welcome, Allie.
2: Thanks, Dave, for the introduction.
0: Uh, Yes, Allie, we're thrilled to have you uh, for our first episode. Uh, I have to say, I'm a huge fan of your stuff, and I was a huge fan of this piece. What uh, I wanted to start with, uh, what uh, led you to write this piece?
2: Well, first of all, Tom, thank you for having me on the podcast, Tom and Dave, and I'm happy to be here to talk about Compliance Week's second case study. So, to answer your question, When Dave and I began discussing the subject of our second case study, the first one was on Carnival Corporation, we kept coming back to Volkswagen for two main reasons. One was we had already accumulated a lot of valuable resources from Volkswagen over the past years. Stephanie Davis, the CEO of Volkswagen Group of America, had participated in one of Compliance Week national events back in, I think, 2019. Dave had also interviewed Chief Integrity Officer our head of integrity and legal affairs, rather, Hiltrude Warner, twice in the past years. Um, so we already felt that we were sitting on a treasure trove of valuable information that needed to be unpacked and shared with our audience. And then, secondly, it was timely. Volkswagen had just wrapped their three year monitorship in September 2020 with a glowing certification from former U.S. Deputy Attorney General Larry Thompson. So the timing was right as well to celebrate how far Volkswagen had come since the Dieselgate scandal broke in 2015.
0: Ellie, what were two or three of the biggest surprises you had in researching this piece?
2: That's a great question. I was surprised to learn how far back the nefarious conduct actually went. Quiet conversations began as early as 2008, seven years prior to Volkswagen's coerced confession to US authorities. Another big surprise, I was also surprised to learn Volkswagen had doubled down on their lie when the California Air Resources Board, known as CARB, first started suspecting that something was afoot. CARB began questioning discrepancies in testing of diesel vehicles in 2014. And at that time, Volkswagen actually issued a phony recall ostensibly to fix the discrepancy issue but really what they did was perfect their cheating software to throw carb off their scent. And then a third thing that I was surprised on a personal level was that Volkswagen had owned owned so many brands. They owned 12 different brands and I wasn't much of a car enthusiast prior to writing this case study, but I've gotten more into cars ever since. So now when I see a BMW or a Porsche on the street, I can think to myself, oh, Volkswagen actually owns those brands as well as 10 others, including Audi, Bentley, and even Lamborghini.
0: I suppose for me as a reader or consumer of the piece, I was struck by the Volkswagen part of the equation. Kind of going into the piece, I had expected you to really focus more on the monitor, uh, the monitor ship, the monitor team, and, and much more of a kind of a top-down thou shall approach. But what struck me was uh, Volkswagen really stepped up to embrace not only that they had to change their culture, but to use the monitorship as a tool or lever to help do so and that they worked thoroughly to do so. Uh, Was that your conclusion or did I misread that?
2: No, that absolutely was my conclusion as well. I got the impression that, well, first of all, let me back up. I have to thank Hiltrude Werner and her entire team for their candor, their candor and their openness to chatting with me, because I walked away from my conversations with the Volkswagen staff, um, completely aware of the immense amount of pride they have working for Volkswagen, and, and they have six hundred and seventy thousand employees. And I think particularly the Germany-based employees. Feel an incredible amount of pride because the identity of the company is very much tied up into their national identity. So, when the scandal broke, I think there was a lot of heartbreak, anger, and disappointment amongst employees. Most of those employees came to work to do their jobs every day and they felt betrayed by these top executives who had made poor judgment calls that reflected on everyone. So, that said, Having Hiltrude Werner at the helm leading the cultural operation also confirms to me the company's conviction to change. Because if you've ever had a chance to hear her speak, you know that she says what she means and she means what she says. She's full of gravitas and her unwavering tone at the top about building a culture of integrity being the utmost concern for Volkswagen, Um, it feels real. And it has a trickle effect amongst employees.
0: On, on a bit more of the technical side, I also got the sense that uh, Volkswagen really worked hand in hand with the monitor, and that they seemed to mirror uh, internally the roles that the entire monitorship team took in place. Uh, and and I got walked away thinking that they were really worked together hand in glove. Did you see that really from an operationalized perspective as well?
2: Yes. So, operationally, yes. That was strategically and intentionally how Volkswagen set it up. They, they wanted every member of the monitor team to have a counterpart. So, that was very much intentional. Um, but that being said, it, it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies for three years either. So, having read the three auditor reports, which are public, um, I can tell you that there certainly were wrinkles along the way. They did have, you know, it's very much described in in an, in an opaque way, but there were some discussions at certain points um, of disagreement or times when Volkswagen had made a few fairly minor oversights in the first year of the auditing that they quickly owned up to. But I got the sense that it took some time, particularly in the first year, for walls to come down and trust be built. But both sides had a meeting of the minds in terms of focusing on their shared goal and both Hiltrude Warner and former former um, deputy monitor Scott Mara told me that they maintained this focus on their shared goal this shared goal of reinventing Volkswagen's culture as one of a culture of integrity and because they kept that common focus they were able to stay aligned
0: Uh, And could I maybe now with my concluding question, ask you about what you might see down the road. Do you see, uh, you mentioned the pride that the Volkswagen employees feel now in their company and even you noticing uh, if you see a Porsche or you see an Audi or you see another brand, uh, you know, that's part of the Volkswagen brand. Where do you see Volkswagen's corporate identity or perhaps corporate culture down the road?
2: Yeah, this is another great question. I sensed that they remain as ambitious and as competitive as ever, but they've now channeled that ambition and competitiveness towards their ESG goals. So they launched a Drive Bigger campaign in 2019, which pledged to sell approximately 22 million electric vehicles through the year 2028. And they have set a goal to become 100% carbon neutral across The fleet production and administration globally by 2050 and as part of the u.s settlement they were also required to invest in electrify america and they spent about two billion dollars on a network of charging stations across the u.s so to me i still think their corporate identity is very much tied into pride ambition competitiveness, but it seems to me that whatever they set their minds to do, whether it's good or bad, they accomplish it. Well, Allie, I want
0: to do uh, thank you so much for, uh, first of all, taking the time to come and visit with us about your special report, but also uh, the research and writing you put into it. It's a great document for the compliance professional. It's a great story, and I thought it was a great read. So uh, kudos, and uh, we're going to take uh, our final break.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Hello, Tom Fox, back again for our final segment, and we're going to get to the sports segment. Uh, Dave, in a former life, was a sports journalist, but more important than that, he is an Uber fan as well. And I think everybody knows uh, where I stand on sports. So, Dave, we've got some baseball, we've got some basketball, and we've even got some football. Uh, I'm going to start off by talking about my Astros and that uh, uh, up until the uh, little hiccup over the weekend they had the second best record in baseball uh, they are engendering as much hate as is possible uh, as they uh, travel through uh, the US on road games I was I was particularly struck uh, when they went to Yankee Stadium where 10,000 Yankee fans made so much noise that MLB took notice and uh, some of the Astros players got their feelings hurt uh, because the uh, Yankee fans were so vehement about calling them cheaters. Uh, they are cheaters, and they were cheaters rather. Uh, it, but the other thing that struck me is that uh, I, I think these guys now have to play through this for the for the rest of their career. There are only four Astros who were on the pennant-winning 2017 che- team that was uh, admitted cheaters, uh, but every player now who plays with the Astros, I think, has that uh perhaps stigma and that they're uh they're gonna have to live with that and they're gonna have to deal with that um but they're gonna try to play baseball and show that they can win uh at least not being caught cheating
1: yeah i think i think you're right tommy it it is going to be a while i mean if you look you know from my perspective anyway so I, i look at this through a uh i guess a new england lens uh if you look at the patriots obviously the most hated team in the nfl uh, because of what happened with, with Spygate back in 2007, it came out that they were they were caught uh, caught taping taping signals and uh, doing some other taking some other shortcuts. Um, so obviously, uh, the, you know the New England fan uh, is very familiar with that uh, sort of that feeling of being labeled of their favorite team being labeled as cheaters, and so that. And actually you know if you think about it that came out back in 2007 we're still t- sort of talking about it up until not not necessarily today because tom brady left the patriots last year but you know it was a good 10 11 years that it was i mean partially that was because uh bill belichick was still around tom brady was still around but uh i'm glad that you've embraced it because that's that's sort of the way new england new englanders did it with the with the patriots sort of an, an us against the world mentality uh, because from our perspective, from, page, from the Patriots fan perspective, uh, what the Patriots did wasn't really all that—you know—wasn't really all that bad. Wasn't really all that uh, different from what other NFL teams were doing. Now, from my perspective, as, a, as a, again as a New Englander, what the Astros were doing was outrageous. Like banging the trash cans to indicate what what pitch was coming—that was that was something that, that that changed the game for them. And I think the numbers pan the numbers sort of uh indicated that now that also being said one of one of the people most responsible for that, Alex Gore, is now the manager of my boston Red sox. so so how do I feel about that? so i so I think you sort of have to uh you know I think you're 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 taking it the right way. um you're acknowledging that you know what the Astros did here. Uh, yeah, they yes, they cheated, but you know what they're still my team uh, and to some degree, every team out there, uh, is trying to, to to take some sort of a shortcut to get some sort of an advantage. Um, now, whether they get caught or not is one thing, and the, the level to which, or, or I guess the the boldness with which they do it is probably different. Um, but, but I think you're, you're taking the right approach. And the Astros certainly, I mean, they're a great baseball team. So you, you can't really argue with that. You can stand behind the team confidently uh, and sort of say, like, you know, right now they are what they are. I've embraced what they've done in the past. I'll I'll accept the criticism. I'll take it, you know, as, as an Astros, Astros fan, you certainly will hear it. Um, And the players will hear it too. Uh,
0: But, but I think you're, you're, you're taking the right approach. So speaking of some of the best teams in baseball, Dave, I just looked at the standings on ESPN and your Red Sox have actually the second best record in baseball. 30 wins uh, and seem to be uh, have turned it around. Certainly from from last year. How are you feeling about your Red Sox this year? So that that this is a surprise. This this is pretty
1: surprising to me because last year was you know probably I was probably as disinterested in the Red Sox as I as I've ever been in my lifetime. Last season they were an awful team. They really acknowledged as much. You had the owner John Henry coming out and saying essentially you know, we we don't believe in this team we're not investing much in this team um you had your best pitcher chris sale out with uh, you know out for the season with surgery second best pitcher eduardo rodriguez was down for the season due to complications from covid the, you know your 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 best um sorry uh, their best uh excuse me uh their best hitter uh jd martinez had his the worst season of his career and he he was complaining because you know he wasn't able to watch video in between his at bats it was it was really disheartening like it was almost as if they didn't care and so as a result the fans didn't care um they had one of the worst records in baseball so expectations heading into this year were very very low my expectations were probably even lower because i didn't have any expectations i didn't care uh, but this season they've, they've come out you know alex cora is back he was suspended for or actually he was he was suspended, but he was also fired from the Red Sox. Uh, but he did come back this year. Um, Alex core is back at the helm. He clearly knows what he's doing. He clearly can inspire this team. Uh, they've got a lot of young hitters: Xander Bogarts, Raphael Devers, uh, Christian Vasquez. I mean, they've got a good young core, uh, and they're they're playing great. They're getting some unexpected contributions. Like I, I personally thought. Uh, Garrett Richards starting pitcher was washed up. Um, and his first two starts this season sort of backed that up, but he's really turning it around. He's 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 their best pitcher right now. Nathan Evaldi's played well at Roder Rodriguez, is back. Uh, you know, even even Nick Pivetta is having a, having a great season. So, so I'm, I'm I am more often opti- much more optimistic about the Sox now. They're they're in second place, they're in playoff position. Uh, and my interest is is sort of it's sort of on its way back, um, as well as the interest of, of of Boston and New England in general, especially as as Fenway starts to open up. Because we're uh, I know I know down in Texas you guys have been open forever, but uh, just this weekend um, is is when stadiums in Massachusetts can start yeah. to fill to capacity. So uh, so yeah so so
0: the socks are back and fans are back and you know interest is. F- Hey, let's turn to a little bit of football, and I want to uh, ask your thoughts on uh, Tim Tebow to the Jags. Uh, This uh, seems to, not seems to, it has generated uh, a lot of controversy. He has switched from quarterback to uh, tight end. He has not played in the NFL since 2014. Uh, I suppose anything Tim Tebow is going to generate controversy because of who he is and, and what he has stood for over the years. I kind of come down thinking there, there, there seems to be a lot of criticism both from former NFL players and commentators that he's uh, no chance of making the team. This is just a publicity stunt that he's unfairly taking the slot that could be uh, open for a younger player. Uh, I really kind of come down that if, if somebody wants to try something, let him try it. And if he thinks he can play in the NFL, you know, let, let, him, let him take his shot. Uh, I really don't care about his politics or anything else. I care about whether he can play football. Maybe uh, from your perspective as a you know recovering sports journalist, how do you see this?
1: Uh, well, first off, I, I see it as, um, I guess, incredibly predictable. Uh, because here you have Jacksonville, uh, the closest NFL team to where Tim Tebow is still revered uh, in Gainesville, Florida, where he played his college ball. Uh, so, so you've got the Jacksonville uh, Jaguars being coached by Tebow's former coach at Florida, Urban Meyer. So, it's certainly predictable that this would be a landing spot. And I'm, and I'm with you, Tom, in the sense that I don't, I don't see this as a, as a really big deal. He's not going to make the team. He's, and he's, he's also not really taking an opportunity away from, it, from anybody because, you know, a third or a fourth tight end on any NFL roster. That's not, that's not somebody who's a talented pass catcher. That's not somebody that you would consider a skill player in the traditional sense. That's someone who's essentially a blocker, a glorified blocker. And you know, with Tim Tebow, you could argue that the intangibles that he brings, his personality, his mo- the, the ability, the, his likability among, among players, among his teammates, um, and you know, honestly, the intangible that he brings to, to, a, to a locker room, um, his leadership skills, his, you know, the fact that he that he can be a quarterback. I mean, not a good one, but uh, he does have that skill set. If you want to get him involved in any trick plays, now I'm I'm speaking as if he's going to make the roster. If if he had a chance, I don't think he will. Uh, but I I think it, it's it's certainly uh, it's certainly driving interest in the Jaguars. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about the Jaguars otherwise. Um, you know, the Jaguars might potentially could be an exciting team. They've got a, a new quarterback, uh, a new coach. Tim Tebow is on the team at least for now, I, I, so I'm with you. I don't I don't think this is a uh, this is a big thing. Um, I think it's fun personally.
0: I want to see what happens. Well, I think that's probably a good note uh, for us to end on, Dave. I'd like to thank our audience for joining us for our uh, first episode of From the Editor's Desk. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Dave and I on the last Friday of each month where we get together to take a retrospective look back of what's appeared in Compliance Week and what may be coming for the next month.